When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, thanks for listening as always. Uh, Before I get into Lawyers in Love and Somebody's Baby with my guest, just want to say that I hope everyone's doing okay and staying safe. Um, When I launched this podcast during a pandemic, that already seemed like kind of a crazy backdrop. And then now we're in a whole different thing. And George Floyd's death is a complete tragedy. And there's a line of tragedies that preceded him. And what's happening right now is a response to that. And it's a visceral response, and it's a passionate response. And for those reasons, it might not be an aesthetically pleasing response, but an example of an aesthetically pleasing response is a football player quietly taking a knee. And even that managed to be divisive in these times. I took last week off from doing this podcast and just had a fun conversation with a friend of mine right before all this got crazy. Um, But during that week off, I did three or four interviews for future episodes including next week's episode, which is about um, Lives in the Balance and World in Motion. And this is a very deliberate decision by Jackson Brown to make two albums in the back half of this decade that basically take on the issues he sees in the world. It's him sort of committing his voice to that. He did a ton of advocacy work and played a lot of benefits and everything like that prior to this. None of that's any secret. Um, It's another thing to make those albums when your sort of biggest hit was just a few years earlier in something like Somebody's Baby. You can go a different way pretty easily. And I think there's a lot of courage in that. Obviously, the subject matter and the conversation that I have around those albums are different. They're from 30 years ago, but I can assure you, you will find parallels. Um, Even beyond what's happening in the world right now, if you're a person who listened to those first five or six Jackson Brown albums and sort of fell off from there because no doubt there are a good amount of people who did that. That's just inevitable. I've had these conversations already and they were very cool and very satisfying to me. And the beauty of having a conversation like this is it lets you come at someone's art from another angle and another perspective. And each of these guests did that for me, starting with next week's guest, who is Holly Gleason, who was on the running on empty episode, which I highly enjoyed and Um, she was equally awesome in this next one. And as I said, I've been doing a lot of thinking about how much I should or should not say in a moment like this. And Jackson Brown is an example of someone who said something in a time when he felt he should, and I think that's cool. And if you hated that and suddenly want to unsubscribe, just think for a second about how much worse your Facebook feed is than what you're going to hear right now and what you're going to hear next week and the week after that. Every one of these conversations that I've been recording in the last couple weeks have been really smart, and they're all anchored by the music. And so with that, we get into today's episode. Enjoy. Lawyers in Love came out in August of 1983 and is Jackson Brown's seventh full-length album. 
It hit number 8 on the Billboard Pop Charts, making it his fourth straight top 10 release. The title track was also a top 20 hit, and it represented his first music video, which is a pretty beautiful slice of the 80s that I discovered this week. In the year leading up to this album, he wrote and recorded Somebody's Baby with Danny Korchmar for the Fast Times at Ridgemont High soundtrack. That song almost ended up on Lawyers in Love, but it did not, and my guest and I talk a good amount about that today. So this is the first Jackson Brown album to be released after Rolling Stone started using stars on their record reviews. Lawyers in Love actually got four out of five, which quite honestly surprised me. Um, That reviewer was Chris Connolly, who is a writer I later came to know pretty well through MTV and ESPN, which is kind of cool thing to discover when you're looking back at these reviews. Connolly begins, When Brown has all of his talents in register, his work is almost appallingly moving. Lawyers in Love allows Brown to escape, once and for all, the L.A. albatross that has hung around his neck for the last 11 years. Even though Lawyers in Love does send Brown into uncharted waters, where he occasionally sounds a bit lost, it nevertheless is a more nervy, intelligent LP than its predecessor, Holdout. He plunges into new environments and finds new ways of looking at the world. In downtown, he seems most dramatically out of place, like an upscale tourist misdirected to the wrong side of the tracks. He tries to take it in, ghetto blasters, rodents, the rest, but all he can manage is a chowder-headed cry of, it's all music. It sure as hell isn't great music, though. It feels a little weird to spend that much time on downtown early in this album because it really is not the greatest song and is probably one of Jackson Brown's worst songs, in my opinion. But I think Connolly holds that up as a pretty good example of him being kind of out of his zone in this new time, in this new place. And the cool thing is it then flips over to Tender is the Night, which is a really good song, and that's where Connolly picks up as well. His eye is a lot keener on Tender is the Night, an outstanding bit of songcraft with a gut bucket bottom nicely set off by Craig Durge's jaunty keyboard touches. Brown takes in the world of lovers with appalling wistfulness. This isn't Jackson Brown's best album, but it does rein in his excesses better than previous efforts, and it points in some interesting directions. I would say that it reins in his excesses on some fronts, as Connolly pointed out, but that it also, in its own ways, is his most excessive album. Um, There's some pretty thick, layered instruments and high harmonies and a lot of action on this one. And that concludes the review. And my guest today is Tom Hampton, who is a multi-instrumentalist, sideman, session musician, and singer-songwriter who lives in Nashville. This year, he joined the country rock band Poco as a guitarist and vocalist, and he toured for years with the Marshall Tucker Band. Tom reached out to me, actually, after he heard my conversation with Holly Gleason about running on empty. And to be totally truthful, this album always made the least amount of sense to me out of all of Jackson Brown's albums, from its cover to its lyrics to its sound, everything. Um, It was kind of a mystery to me. I was a baby in the 80s, so much of that decade is kind of beyond my comprehension, and I've been attempting to learn about it later and this is really jackson brown's most kind of full throttle 80s album to say that tom was the perfect person to help me kind of make sense of that and kind of see this album from a new perspective would be a massive understatement he was really great to talk to you can find more about tom at tomhampton.com or on twitter at tomhampton t-o-m-h-a-m-p-t-o-n Hey, you can follow me on Twitter at Routine Layup. And if you're really enjoying the show, you can go to patreon.com slash after the deluge to support it and get some very cool bonus content. There is a link in the show description.
This conversation kind of just jumps right in with Tom and I talking about Holdout and Lawyers in Love as sort of this transition phase in his career, and then we kind of run forward from there. Thanks for listening and enjoy. interesting if you look at it within the context of all of his albums it actually with the, with lawyers in love and the next two albums that come holdout suddenly doesn't seem so far removed from the pretender you know and there's something interesting in that to me and something about the process of listening to lawyers in love a lot these last few days is that i'm i i really found myself like enjoying it in a way that Basically, I wasn't projecting my expectations of like 70s Jackson Brown onto it. It's so clearly in the 80s that it's there's something liberating and great about that. And you're just like, you're just in the album, you know? You know, the bird's eye view is an amazing thing, isn't it? You know, when you get that perspective and you can, you know, actually get above everything and look at it from 30,000 feet, it's, you know, when when you're listening to that record in the moment in 1983, I was, you know, I was 17 years old. I was getting ready to graduate high school and, you know, it, it sounded like, you know, having heard Holdout and there was so many things on Holdout that I loved, you know, I, I didn't see it as a huge departure from running on empty or the pretender, or, or those other records, because I was still focused on Jackson, you know, as, as a, as a lyrical craftsman and, you know, somebody who, you know, really, really dug deep to, to try to find something, you know, to say. So when, when lawyers came out for me, it it sounded like a, a contrived attempt to, to be modern and it, you know, I kind of feel like I came to it from a similar place that you did, you know, it, it, listening to it now, it doesn't sound as dated as I thought it would when I went back to revisit it. Uh, you know, there are, there are some sounds on the record that, you know, like some of the synth patches and stuff like that, that, you know, you listen to it and you go, yeah, that is definitely pre DX seven eighties, you know, keyboard sounds, but one of the things, there were a couple of things that I took away from it when I when I revisited the record, and one of them is, you know, between Holdout and this record, Lawyers in Love, he was probably singing at the best he ever sang in his entire career. still Jackson Brown. Maybe it's hard to see it through the the sheen of the record because there are some amazing guitar tones on that record. And you can tell that even though they cut it largely live in a room in downtown LA, they were setting up to rehearse and they just started cutting tracks where they were rehearsing. But the the guy that, that toiled over those lyrics, he's still there. It just wasn't completely apparent to me at the time. Yeah. We're, we're kind of trained as people to like, look at the sort of brooding person sitting at a piano and singing like with, with some background music to complement the lyrics. Those are the songs where you say, I'm putting all my attention on the lyrics. If all of a sudden there's synthesizers, heavy drums, a full band all the time, it's just going to feel more removed from the foreground. Right? Sure. I mean, he was 34 years old. 
Um, you know, we, we all know the story about his first marriage, but, uh, he had married Lynn Sweeney, uh, who he had met in Australia and that marriage was falling apart while he was writing and recording the record. Um, in the Rolling Stone interview specifically, uh, he confessed to the interviewer, uh, that, you know, he, he, he knew that they were going to be splitting up. He just didn't know when. Um, yeah, and it's, it's kind of an awkward interview to read. It's, it's online. It's not hard to find, but, um, you know, you could tell that he was struggling with the, the end of that relationship and on, on songs like cut it away. And, you know, even on the day on the day sounds a bit like a, a reprise of some of the, the, the subject matter that he was singing about on holdout, you know, on the day that you fall in love, you're going to pray that love is enough. You know, you had the world in the palm of your hand since you turned from child to man. No one can tell you a thing you don't know. Your life's a one man show. And then at the end of the song, he's saying, you know, there are things that you don't control. You're going to know what I'm talking about on the day that love finds you out. Um, yeah. there, there's a lyrical sense of foreboding, you know, that maybe gets overlooked in the production value of the record. But um, he's still Jackson Brown. And it wasn't apparent to me at the time um, because, like I said, I was I was kind of coming off of a bit of of I don't know buyer's remorse is not the word I'm looking for, but, you know, I had heard the record and I thought, you know, my, my initial thought was, you know, David Lindley is nowhere to be found on this record. And as a huge David Lindley fan, um, that was hard for me to get over. Um, but, you know, as I've matured and, you know, a lot of time has passed since then, you know, you come to realize as, as you watch the clock spin around and the odometer continue to roll over that, you know, that's just kind of the way that things go. You know, you learn to appreciate moments for the moments that they are. You know, like we talked about, he was already kind of tipping his his hat on some of the songs on on Holdout, you know, on Boulevard and on Disco Apocalypse. You know, there was there was something in the air that he was definitely looking to to make a move down the road and people have saddled you with as your identity. I'm sure Tom Petty went through the same thing when he was making Southern accents. You know, I mean, they were, they were the jangly guitar band that made records that sounded like the birds for, you know, five or six albums. And then Southern accents came out and it had don't come around here no more. And some of those songs on it, you know, I kind of feel like that record for him was a reaction to his identity in much the same way that Lawyers in Love for Jackson Brown was a reaction on his part to the identity that he felt like he'd been pigeonholed into. Um, yeah. In the Rolling Stone article, uh, there's a quote. It says, the intimate, confessional, and introspective song really had its time, the middle of the 70s, the first half. But then you got a lot of really bad examples of it. So it always interests me to hear from people who liked Late for the Sky best because those songs at least six out of the eight were really the culmination of a period that I just don't feel anymore. It was my literary period, long form rambling songs and iambic pentameter with that run on philosophical attitude. I was wistful, searching, bleary eyed for God in the crowds. Um, and then around the same time in that musician magazine interview, uh, when he was talking to Bill Flanagan, uh, he made a, a really interesting comparison that I still think about a lot. He said, um, you know, there are records I love that are not good songs, but are great records. Burt Burns and Jerry Ragavoy and Phil Spector and the Beatles made records, records that stay records. Walk Away Renee is a good song, but it's not a good record. And I think a lot of my records are that way. They're not so well made. People were making magnificent sounding records from the beginning of rock and roll, Elvis and Motown. 
you know, those records are made like a 55 Chevrolet. It's still beautiful and it still drives. And I don't think I hear, I used to hear any of what I hear now in those old records. You know, I didn't really pay attention to anything until Bob Dylan. I liked the Beatles. You heard them all the time, but I wasn't really aware of how clever and how well made some of those records were. Record making stuff can get in the way of writing a song. A lot of times in an arrangement, you'll say, you know, this sounds great. Let's do it. And it may be a great effect, but it may not make a good song. And I think in most cases, I've always had to try to write the song, but I find that I'm really attracted to record making. Jesus, that's all those quotes you just read are amazing. He's trying not to be, you know, the guy in the, you know, with, with the acoustic guitar, you know, singing confessional songs and, and, you know, because at some point, you know, another thing that he had said, you know, to a guy in the New York times, somebody had, had accused him at some point of strip mining his life, you know, for songs. Uh, and he said, I hope that's not true. This time I set out to deliberately write, so- write songs that would be less personal than some of my earlier ones in that sense. But I've never thought of my songs or records as an autobiography. And I want people to think about themselves, their own lives and situations when they hear these songs and not about me breaking up with my wife or something. I always hope when I'm starting to work on a song that when I'm finished with it, it'll be good enough to transcend just being about Jackson Brown. Yeah. If it's easy to say, hey, I don't like this as much, but it's like that's a pretty thoughtful person telling you, here's why I want to make the record that I made. You kind of alluded a little earlier to like, this is basically an album made in a warehouse in downtown LA in a non-traditional, not, not in the way he typically made albums. And that, that fits into what you're describing, I think. So Rick Vito had replaced David Lindley in, in Jackson's band. And Rick was, he had a band that played in a club in Hollywood the same night of every week. and. Danny used to sit in with Rick's band and at some point Danny had taken a job with somebody else and Jackson went down and started playing with Rick's band. And eventually everybody in Jackson's band kind of became Rick's band, you know, for this club date that they played every week. And it, it morphed into them instead of going into a traditional studio into just finding a rehearsal space downtown to start working through what they thought would be the songs for the record. But then they eventually had Cartage bring in all the machines and a mixer and Greg Ladani came down and they ended up, they ended up making the record right there. When you learn about that, that's the way that they went about making the record. And then hear a song like downtown, like downtown is a song that if I was like waiting for Jackson Brown to give me a piece of like lyrical genius, like, like long form confessional writing downtown is a failing. If you look at it in that way, but if you look at it as a, a band in a room together trying to capture an energy that fits into the larger like theme of the full record and it's like you come at it from this other direction and it's no longer failing like it serves its purpose you know Yeah, I think if you heard Boulevard on Holdout, I don't think Downtown was much of a surprise to you. Yeah. This album came out in August of 1983. It basically came out 10 days after I was born. I was born on July 22nd, 1983. So this has the distinction of being the first Jackson Brown album that came out after I was alive, which a thing I learned this week, basically. But, <laughs> but I have my... It's kind of interesting, like everything from the cover of this album to these sort of like, there's a lot of constant kind of references to like 
there's a lot of references to the night and it's nighttime on the cover and it's like references to the city and to it just kind of it does its job of putting out a certain vibe and what's interesting about that is like i've watched movies from like the 80s and have a general understanding of the 80s like if you watch the original like michael keaton batman movie there's a certain sort of like inner city downtown city vibe to me as i consume it feels like it it's a part of that larger culture somehow i could totally be wrong on that i could be projecting other stuff onto it but it i don't know it feels like a thing that fits into a lot of the stuff i've consumed from that time period well i mean much like you know middle class america and and you know leave it to beaver and and shows like that were you know such a a fixated thing with america in the 50s you know, and, and keep in mind, this record came out a year before Miami Vice became a thing. You know, there's there's an entire period there. And you know, I, I think it's born out of, you know, the you know, kind of being in the middle of the Reagan years and, and you know, a shift in values. And you know, the homeless problem was starting to become a homeless problem. And, you know, HIV was right around the corner. And, yeah, there, there was a lot of fixation both in movies and in television and in music you know, with that kind of, you know, post-sunset urban landscape, you know, both on the East Coast and the West Coast. Um, you know, it wasn't necessarily a California thing or a New York thing. It was it was kind of universal. But yeah, you know, that song and like I said, coming out of Boulevard and going into that song, it was it was definitely a theme. And, you know, it was also a downtown was also a song that, you know, you could kind of tell might have been a thing where, you know, the band wrote those riffs before he sat down with the legal pad and, and the, and the pen to write the lyrics. It, it, it was a, it was a song before it was a, you know, it, it was a musical idea before it was a, a song. It very much feels that way. I would, and I, I that's would. probably true of a few songs on this record. I think downtown and also for a rocker, you know, I mean that, that little four note, you know, descending riff that, that echoes over and over through that song you know, I mean, yeah, there's some clever stuff in the, in the lyrics, but you know, it's, you know, he actually shouted out everybody in the band by name, you know, lines like, you know, I got a shirt, I got a shirt so unbelievably bright. I'm going to dig it out and wear it tonight for a rocker. Don't have to feed them. They don't eat. They got power supplies in the soles of their feet. It's, you know, it's, it's not before the deluge, you know, it's, you know, he's, he's writing, you know, He's just writing a song to for the band to play. It's yeah, and it's a fun song. I got a shirt so unbelievably bright. I'm gonna dig it out and wear it tonight for a rocker. For a rocker. For a rocker. And same thing with downtown. It was you know, it was a guy who was you know, I think kind of tired of being you know viewed in that you know confessional form who wanted to try to do something else. He was really attracted to that. Like he said in that interview to the notion of making a record as opposed to just writing a song. And that seems to be to me, kind of the underlying theme of that whole record is, you know, here's a guy who's, you know, who, who's been working in this vein for, you know, over the course of his entire record making career. And, you know, he just played no nukes with Springsteen and, and he's got some ideas he wants to try out. What's interesting is like, this one actually did get a good review in Rolling Stone. It got a force. I mean, th- and what's interesting is this one marks also the period when Rolling Stone started giving starred reviews to albums as far as Jackson Brown's career goes. And it got four mm-hmm. stars in Rolling Stone and um, it, it picks its moments to talk about what it think it, what they think he didn't do well, but it's on the whole, 
a positive review? Well, it's it's not a record you would expect to get good marks from, you know, from the critical cognoscenti because of the kind of record it is and the departure that, you know, that it signified from his previous work. It's, it's almost like he was inviting people to rip into pieces, but, you know, he, he made the record he wanted to make. Um, I think that's probably true of every, every record he's ever made. He made the record that he set out to make because, you know, he's, he's definitely a perfectionist. The, the Rolling Stone cover story from, from that record, uh, which is actually titled Jackson Brown adapts, um, you know, the, the opening paragraph of, of the, uh, of the the article is about him having somebody you know, uh, you know Craig Durge was about to walk on stage wearing a pair of Gap jeans and he's like yeah no no you got to get that off of there and they actually found a razor blade a utility knife and cut the the Gap label off of his pants before he went on stage. Um, <laughs> Do you have a sense of what he's getting at specifically with Lawyers in Love? Well, the title for that song actually came first. Um, his wife at the time, Lynn Sweeney, she's from Australia. And uh, her brother, his his brother-in-law was visiting. And he had made a remark to Jackson that all of Los Angeles looked like, looked like it had been designed by lawyers in love. And that's that's where the line came from. And he had said in the, the Rolling Stone interview that, you know, usually he'll work on a song over a period of months. But on this one... Uh, yeah, he felt like he had to live up to the title, and it's it's definitely a critique of, you know, of, of what Reagan's America had evolved into. And I wonder sometimes, you know, how many times he might have dropped the f bomb in the song if he had written it now, forty years later. But yeah, it was it was definitely a look at, you know, our kind of abandonment of higher ideals, and you know, as as Joni Mitchell once said, you know, in a in an interview, well, you know, we can't change the world, we can't change ourselves. Let's just go make money. And, and that's where we were. And, and it was, you know, it, it started out with uh, an idea for a title of a song that he overheard in a conversation and he can't, he, you know, just kind of wrote it around that notion of, you know, this is, this is kind of what we've become, you know, we, we've, you know, we're not, we're not sailing away, you know, like in, you know, from Silver Lake or for every man looking for, you know, a better world. We're, we're not, we've kind of abandoned that at this point. And, you know, we've, we've given up on those ideals and this is who we've become. This is, this is what we are now. Now what's cool about that is like, I don't know that origin story of that song, but without knowing the specifics of that, it still makes it sense, you know? Well, I mean, you could, you know, you could substitute any number of phrases for it. They just wouldn't sing as well. I mean, hedge fund managers in love just doesn't roll off the tongue the same way, you know? (laughs) So to, so to that end, like we've talked a little bit about like, this is 1983. We're pretty early into Reagan's America. I wouldn't say that this is like, this is an album that references the Soviet Union and, and references like political, economic, social stuff, but it's not a straight like political protest type album like the next two that he would make like how does this album feel to you in terms of like you're coming off holdout and you're heading toward lives in the balance like what is this album as as it stands between those two well there again there's a little bit of foreshadowing if you know where to look because you know the 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 context of hindsight you know, you can always see this stuff a little clearer. You know, there there are songs like "Say It Isn't True," where he's singing in falsetto, "Say It Isn't True," and then saying almost underneath his breath, "There always has been and always will be war."
you know, the, the fact that he's coming off having, you know, been arrested for protesting at a nuclear test site and having done no nukes and, you know, all the other things that, you know, he had done from an activism standpoint up to that point, it was starting to creep in. You know, it was, it was coming. It was a matter of, you know, it was only a matter of time considering, you know, what he had done in his personal life up to that point before it got to a point where this stuff was going to start to bubble over into the music, you know, and, and as he had said, and in, in years later, you know, what's more personal than your political beliefs, you know, that's to him, it was no different than writing late for the sky or the pretender or, you know, any of the songs on, on holdout. Something about this album feels like a, a bridge into that period. And I kind of, even if I don't consider these albums, my favorite albums, they almost reinforce my love for Jackson Brown or my respect for Jackson Brown doing what he feels like he should be doing in any given moment. You know what I mean? There are not a lot of people that would consider Lawyers in Love, Lives in the Balance, and World in Motion their favorite Jackson Brown albums. There absolutely are people that do think that, that do feel that way, but it's far from the majority. And yet something about them existing in his larger discography just they they solidify my love for him well i think you you in order to grow as an artist you have to make those records you know if if that's where your head's at you know you can't not make those records because the burden of not making those records will have a detrimental effect on your work later on um you know there's there's stuff on this record if you're a fan of his you know his confessional songwriting style you know Say it isn't true is for you. Tender of the you know, tender as the night is for you. You know, cut it away is for you. Um, you know, on the day is for you because you know those lyrical themes and those songs are you know every bit you know they they live up to the same standard that you would hold a song like you know the pretender or the only child or daddy's tune or you know or, or love needs a heart you know that element that that viewpoint is still there it's just if you're too focused on the drum sound or the fact that you know there aren't any ballads you know it'll it'll get lost on you you talked about on the day just now like on the day kind of hits you with that like yeah like mm-hmm. that kind of like little thing at the beginning that feels very it feels very like we've talked about kind of the sort of high production value 80s sound and it kind of does that for its like quick little 10 seconds or however many and then it releases into just very melodic jackson brown like if you liked old jackson brown it's right there for you to love it make a record that's as consistently good across the board as one of those records that becomes your standard and and it's a standard that's almost impossible for any artist to live up to you know Fleetwood Mac made rumors and they made Tusk almost as a reaction to the fact that rumors was such a universally revered record um you know and, and maybe that's the best way to do it you know is to you know after a record that you know everybody considers to be such a high you know critical watermark is to just you know come out and do something completely different because then you either you know end the expectation altogether or you create the expectation that you know you're not going to make that same record over and over again for your whole life that's a good point you know i mean this was 1983 you know now you don't get that chance 
you know, now if you sign a record deal with a major label, you know, they might put out a single, you know, they're probably not even thinking about putting out an album. They'll put out a single and they'll release it to iTunes and Spotify. And if you don't get an immediate buzz, then they're probably not going to spend the money to try to sustain your career, to rebound and, and react to the success that you've had up to that point for somebody like Jackson with a record like Lawyers in Love. You know, the fact that there were a couple of hit singles on there, Lawyers and then Tender is the Night, were both, you know, relatively pretty successful songs. And, you know, Tender is the Night, I think, was one of his first videos he talked about in one of the interviews about how, you know, there were people dancing in this video. And he was terrified because he's like, you know, these people are going to dance to my music. How You know, this 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 is going to be a nightmare. But it actually he was so impressed by what they did that he ended up loving the idea after the fact. So Tender is the Night is like one of those songs that is on like a Jackson Brown Greatest Hits album. So I like connected with it as a kid. I do feel that like when I listen to Downtown and by the time Downtown's done, Tender is the Night is like a beautiful release. I've, I welcome it with such open arms. Between the darkness on the street and the houses filling up with light. Between the stillness in my heart and the roar of the approaching night. Well, I mean, you know, you were you were born around the time I was graduating high school, so this this might be a you know, this might get lost in the generation gap, but you know, we used to make mixtapes, you know, and you would buy blank TDK cassettes that were either 60 or 90 minutes long and you would try to fit an album on one side of the tape so that you could get two albums, you know, on on the same tape and then you could flip it over. And I think we're on the same page. Downtown is the song that you leave off if you don't have enough time to get the whole record on the on on one side of the tape. And understandably, you know, it, it doesn't live up, you know, musically or lyrically to some of the other songs on the record. You, know, you could have five people who would each hear the song, you know, the, the same song and, and take something else away from it. Because, you know, the thing about a song that moves you is the way that it lines up with, you know, your own life and your own experiences and your own perspective. Um, you know, and, and it would be really easy, I'm sure, to to have you know, songs that you've loved since you were a kid completely ruined if you learn too much about them. Um, in Bill Flanagan's Musician Magazine interview, um, yeah, he had just played a show you know, as, as the, the interview started. He had just played a show and he was signing autographs on his way out of the venue on the way back to the hotel. Um, Jackson Brown shook hands with the last beaming fan, signed the final autograph and climbed under the tour bus for the trip from the concert hall to the hotel. Strikingly thin with his new haircut exposing rather prominent ears, Brown looks younger at 35 than many rockers do at 22. With the useful appearance comes an open West Coast manner that makes it easy to think of Jackson as one of the boys until the driver turns on the radio and the DJ plays the pretender, that is. As close to the bone as any description of frightened people selling short their dreams, the song is a forceful reminder of Jackson Brown's stature in American music. As the lyric on the radio spins out, the composer stares silently out the window. I wonder what he's thinking. After he's autographed his way through a crowd at the hotel, I ask him, what was going through your mind as a pretender played on the radio in the bus? I was thinking we should have played it faster. (laughs) Jesus, that's insane. That is an amazing scene. You know, you're watching the guy that wrote the song, listening to these lyrics play back in the room that you're sitting in, and he's looking out the window, and you're thinking, man, what is going on in his mind right now? You know, and and I I was thinking we should have played it faster. Amazing. That's incredible. (laughs) He's got a lot of moments. I rewatched the, like, Going Home documentary, and he's got a lot of these moments where you're like, 
you'll someone says something or he's in a moment and then the thing that he then says on camera is like so askew so like coming from not just coming at you from where you expect it to come and i think that's a lot of the reason his so many of his songs are so good they don't say explicitly in that documentary but it seems to me based on the songs they're playing and the look of the footage and everything that you see a good amount of footage from this warehouse where they recorded lawyers in love. Right. Oh, absolutely. Uh, there's a scene when, you know, you see them walk up the steps and the guys are all kind of standing around a piano that has guitars on top of it. And then Rick Vito picks up this, you know, this old, you know, fifties Goya with push button pickup selectors. And he says, you know, Jackson Brown wants this guitar worse than anything in the world. You know, that's, that's kind of the clubhouse, you know, they're all showing up in there, you're hitting golf balls into a sheet hanging off the wall. And, you know, it's, it's a great way to make a record if you can. So like a lot of what he talked about with making this album is like, you make it in a downtown LA warehouse with the idea that you're sort of like, sort of taking a sampling of the city. Right. And, and you can see that he does that. I'm understanding, right. That like, like now downtown LA and like Brooklyn, New York and, and the North side of Chicago and all that, these places are all like have become gentrified and have become basically nice, super expensive places and like San Francisco and everything. But in 1983, my understanding is that that's not how the downtowns of cities were, right? Well, there was a lot of poverty at that point in time. I mean, keep in mind at the same time as Jackson Brown is making Lawyers in Love, uh, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five were releasing the message. And, you know, West Coast rap was starting to solidify around, you know, some of the acts that would pioneer that, you know, whether it was NWA or, you know, there was there was a lot of gang violence. There was a lot of poverty. Um, you know, there was a lot of that kind of just, you know, just urban survival energy that, you know, and I don't know how much of that informed this record because I don't really hear it on the record other than just in the narrative of, of a couple of the songs, but you know, it was, it was definitely, it, it certainly isn't, you know, it wasn't the LA of the early seventies and it's certainly not the LA of today. Yeah. And so like another interesting thing along the the timeline of it is that you mentioned the music video for tender is the night I watched today, the, music video for lawyers in love and basically MTV MTV emerges at this time. This is, sure. and which is a huge change for music. And it, and it only makes sense to look at a musician like Jackson Brown as someone existing within this like massively changing pop music landscape. Right. And he changes quite a bit. Yeah. It went from MTV taking their cues from radio to the other way around radio started to take their cues from MTV. And that, that literally changed the entire landscape because at that point, you know, and and there, there are other things, you know, cable television is becoming ubiquitous and, you know, Atari and ColecoVision and gaming systems and people were going to the arcade and there were just a lot of things competing for people's attention where, you know, prior to that, maybe you went to the movies, you came home, you watched all in the family, you turned on the radio. I mean, I, you know, when I was a teenager, I seldom, if I probably spent 70% of my time in my room, either listening to records or listening to the radio. Um, now, you know, if, if anybody spends that much time listening to the radio, you're, you're probably asking some questions about, you know, their mental health, you know, are, are you, <laughs> yeah, you really ought to come out and, you know, have dinner in the room with the rest of us, you know, C- come on, come on out of there. Um, yeah, it, it's just, it's a completely different, 
Yeah. And, and of course it was because it's been a long time, you know, from 1973 to 1983, you know, there, there's not a lot that's the same. I don't know the, I, I need to watch the tender is the night video. I watched the lawyers in love video and it's, it's pretty amusing and entertaining. It feels extremely, extremely early MTV eighties. Oh yeah. And funny and really funny to project Jackson Brown into that world. Cause it's not what you, you just don't associate that. People were really trying to figure it out as they went, you know, in the early MTV era, you know, so many videos of slow motion, breaking glass and, and, and things like that. And yeah, I was in the military. I, I joined the military after I got out of high school to save money for college. So I was, I was in the Navy. Uh, from 1984 to 1988 and my first duty station was in Iceland so needless to say there's no MTV in Iceland so we would have you know there were guys that were in my barracks that would have people back home literally pop a VHS tape into the VCR put it on the slow speed and turn on MTV and just hit record for six hours and they would send videotapes to Iceland of, you know, six hours of MTV and, you know, they would pile up in the TV room and the TV lounge in the barracks and people would sit in and, and, you know, it was just surreal, you know, because I mean, you know, I had only, I'd left home in 83 by 84, 85, when I was starting to see some of the stuff that was on MTV by then, you know, I was really starting to wonder what was going on back home and if I wanted to come back at all. Um, <laughs> You know, because, you know, when, when I left, it was still men at work. And then, you know, then there was Madonna and then there was, you know, and I'm like, man, what is happening? What is going on? Were you playing music at that time? Um, I was still kind of trying to find my way as a songwriter at the time. I started out on drums. You know, I played drums in bands all through high school. And I, I picked up a guitar from uh, a friend of mine just because I wanted to try to explore songwriting. So when it was time to leave home, uh, the drums wouldn't fit in a duffel bag, but I could bring the guitar. So the guitar was the obvious choice to, to, to bring along with me. And that's when I really started trying to explore, you know, what it meant to try to write songs. And, and I wrote, you know, 400 terrible songs, you know, just terrible song after terrible song, because that's the only way you get to the 401st song that, you know, isn't quite so terrible is to write all the terrible songs and get them out of your system. Yeah, my mom got me a clock radio for Christmas, you know, for Christmas of 1977. You know, I, I had been, you know, I'd been the kid who was into, you know, superheroes and then into sports a little bit. But, you know, I don't know what possessed her to do that. I don't know what my mom was thinking when she was like, you know, my son is 12. He's going into 13. I'm going to get him a clock radio for Christmas. But, you know, all my musical exposure up to that point had been just what I heard incidentally, whether it was in the car or, you know, in church or, you know, in, in a department store or whatever. I, you know, I was completely, you know, it was, it was an, another world to me because we grew up, you know, in pretty abject poverty in West Tennessee. And, and they're just, we didn't have the outlets, you know, we didn't have, you know, we had two TV stations that we could pick up if the weather was okay. And getting that radio was just like the point in the Wizard of Oz when it goes from black and white to color. You know, that that radio was that line of demarcation in my life and, and, and being exposed to all that music, you know, and plus that was that was 78. That was right around the time that running on empty came out. So I got to hear that record. And then I got to hear, you know, the pretender on the radio and doctor, my eyes on the radio. And it, it turned me onto the fact that, well, you know, there's other stuff that this guy did that you might want to check out as well. You know, where you and I were born were, were, were actually great times 
to, to discover an artist who had a catalog because you could go back and put the story together for yourself. You could, you know, you could, especially a band like the band I'm in now, Poco, you know, I, the first time I ever heard Poco was when crazy love and heart of the night were on the radio on that clock radio that my mom got me as a teenager. And I got to go back and discover, you know, all that band's back catalog and, oh, wow, Randy Meisner was in this band and Timothy B. Schmidt was in this band. And both of those guys ended up in the Eagles and Jim Messina from Loggins and Messina was in this band and he was in Buffalo Springfield. And, you know, you get to put together that backstory and, you know, I'm sure everybody says this, but it was just, a, it was a great time to be becoming a music fan. So feel free to continue to speak about lawyers in love, but I'm going to make the sort of like initial transition point toward somebody's baby. They were suggesting that he put the song on his 1983 album, Lawyers in Love, and he said, no, I'm not going to. And he added, it doesn't have anything to do with the stuff I'm singing. But then he later says, of course, I should have. <laughs> um, <laughs> and what I mean, because it's basically just a great song. But the thing is, like you were talking a little bit earlier about sort of record making. And I think even though I would not consider Lawyers in Love among my favorite Jackson Brown records, I think that he did the job of creating a record that feels like it all is belongs together. And I love Somebody's Baby more than any song on Lawyers in Love and could also see his point that it would be a kind of random song on the record. It's not a particularly heavy song. It doesn't have a lot of nutritional content, but it's a great record. It opens up with, you know, so there's a hook. And then there's another guitar hook that comes in after that. Yeah, there's just hook after hook after hook. recorded um according to that article at the same time that he was recording the tracks for lawyers in love and apparently um let me see if i can find it here um yeah but we recorded a lot of this album set up for a stage somebody's baby was recorded with just monitors in a room with no isolation at all just set up for the stage and flanagan asked him if there was any thought at all about putting that song on the album because it was a hit and he says you know there were two schools of thought I didn't think that song would have gotten on the album anyway. That's why we gave it to the movie. We had it half done and Cameron Crow, the guy who wrote Fast Times at Ridgemont High, he needed a song and he's an old friend of mine. So I said, well, you know, this will be fun. And then somebody said to me, listen, are you kidding? You're going to put out an album and somebody's baby's not going to be on it. I like that song and I expect it to be on your record. So I told everybody, okay, we'll put it on. And then one night I said, all right, put up somebody's baby. And then I said, take it off. And after almost a year making this album, I listened to it once and just said disgustedly, get it out of here. So it was, it apparently was in contention at some point, but you know, it's one of those things where you know, it's one song and it's one song that you know, he remarked to somebody in another interview. He said, you know, it was hard to write a song about so little, you know, th there wasn't a lot of elbow grease there. And he probably felt like, yeah, and I don't want to put words into his mouth or, or speak on his behalf, but he probably felt at that point, like this song's been saturated on the radio. You know, everybody who's yeah. seen the movie 
is picturing Jennifer Jason Lee in a dugout. And I don't know if I want that song on the record. You know, it's, I don't want it to inform what people are going to think about these other songs that are going to be on the record. I, I kind of want that to be its own thing. The case for putting it on the album is it's an incredibly catchy song is basically one of his most successful songs ever. And so lawyers and love would have quote unquote been a more successful album if that song's on it. But if you, step back from that and just speak about it in like artistic terms, like making the album you want to make, you would see that scene from that movie. You would associate it with that movie and you would bring that into this album. If you've seen that movie, you're absolutely seeing that in your head when you hear that song. It's, you know, and yeah, I, I, I guess that's both a blessing and a curse. I mean, it depends on, on, you know, what your thoughts are about, you know, the events that unfold in that scene. But, um, you know, at that point in time, in, in 1982, when he was getting this record ready to put it out, you know, Jackson had an immense amount of clout. He could go to the record label and say, you know, I know you want it on here. I know you think it's going to sell more records. I'm not going to do it. You see it in the movie, and that's a powerful scene in a number of ways. But the song is just, it's just infectious. have a disdain for pop music then you're going to find something not to like about it but it's a great song and you know the other thing that a lot of people don't realize and i don't know if this had anything to do with informing his decision not to put it on the record but the flip side of somebody's baby was a song called crow on the cradle which was uh, an outtake from the muse soundtrack and all of the writer and publisher proceeds from the crow on the cradle from the sales of that single went to Musicians United for safe, for safe energy. So, you know, if you don't put it on the record, people go buy the 45. You're also raising money for a cause that, you know, is part of your, you know, your, your pursuit as an activist. So maybe that had something to do with it. Uh, again, this is supposition on my part. I don't know if it did or not, but yeah. you know, that's also a great song. If you, if you like, you know, pre pretender Jackson Brown that's just it's literally just Jackson and David playing acoustic guitar and fiddle and it's it's an awesome track if you ever get around to flipping the record over and if it's a boy he'll carry a gun sing the crow on the crow it is true that like lawyers in love in this period of time it's not just a shift away from a sound that a lot of people grew to love but like you noted, this is the first time that David Lindley is formally, officially gone. Like he's all over the, he's all over running on empty. And then he's definitely still in holdout. He's gone now and he's gone in a way that like you could tell that a different sonic approach is, is in his place. And I know David Lindley goes to do a lot of his own stuff during this period of time, mm-hmm. but the stuff Jackson Brown did in the, in the early 2000s, which, which taking a lot of his songs and taking them on the road with just him on a stage with an acoustic guitar and a piano. Like you get to hear these songs in that way. And it's awesome. This is still the same songwriter just doing, approaching these songs in a different way, in a different time with different tools during MTV and and all of that. And it's kind of a cool reminder. By the time 2000, the early 2000s come around, you know, he's made I'm Alive and he's made The Naked Ride Home and and he's leaning toward making records for Inside Recordings, which is his own label. Um, 
when you're recording for nobody but yourself and the only person you have to please is yourself, you can really kind of do whatever you want to do, you know, and, and those first two solo acoustic records, you know, they're, they're great records. You know, you feel like you're at the show. People are yelling requests. I mean, that's, that's been a hallmark of a Jackson Brown show for 40 years is as soon as the lights go down, people start screaming for, you know, redneck friend and, and, I think the fact that they leave those first like 20 or so seconds on the front end of running on empty, like that's going to be self-perpetuating. It's, it's like part of that song, you know? My favorite thing about it, and I bet you've heard it because I bet you've turned it up loud enough to hear it. You know, somebody yells road in the sky and then somebody yells redneck friend. And right before he starts stomping the timeout on the stage, somebody faintly in the back of the hall yells, play what you want. Yep, I've heard it. It's, so cool. it's great. It's great, you know, yeah. because he's like, yeah, okay, you know, that's what we were going to do in the first place. So let's kick this thing off. There's a recording of a show from Ireland. I studied abroad in 2004 and went to Ireland, saw some family there, and then saw and timed it around seeing one of those shows in Ireland. We saw another one of those shows like a, a year or two earlier in San Luis Obispo. And we, my friends and I made like homemade DIY David Lindley t-shirts and we wore him to it and and we met him we met him afterward and then two years later i go to ireland i meet him afterward like in like the little backstage thing because i'm just by myself like drinking a bunch of guinness around ireland kind of so of course i'm gonna hang out after and like and meet him and he like i don't know if he's just a really good conversationalist but he's like before i said anything said did you come all the way here from california like as if he re remembered this David Lindley t-shirt, which I know it's kind of a funny like iron on like like homemade David Lindley shirt, but it still was like, Jesus Christ, this is crazy that you would I think you I think you actually remember that shirt. I haven't had enough encounters with him to really speak to, you know, how much he actually takes away from that, but I know that I've I've encountered people at shows that, you know, that bring him his favorite cookies. Yeah, they'll, they'll come and, and they'll have a pass on and they're waiting to bring him these cookies that they bring him every time he comes to town. All right. So before we before we wind down, do you have looking back at Lawyers in Love? Do you what's your favorite song on Lawyers in Love? If you have one, I'll, I'll go first. Mine. It feels pretty obvious, but it's tender as the night. I love it. Well, it's a great song. Um, the two songs on the record that I probably gravitate to the most are probably Knock on Any Door, just because it has this great backbeat. And I just, you know, you hear it and, you know, the, the guitar licks kick in and it just, it feels good. You know, it, it's just a great song. So probably Knock on Any Door and Cut It Away are probably my two favorite songs on the record. Nice. And then you, you mentioned earlier the sort of, the value of taking a bird's eye view on things sometimes when you step back and look at Jackson Brown and everything he's put out over his whole entire career, where does lawyers in love land in that? Not like a ranking or anything like that, but just if you're, if you're going to go listen to Jackson Brown, like how do you feel about lawyers in love as it fits into the whole discography? If you don't make that record when you make it, then it becomes harder to make the records that come after it. You know, lives in the balance is going to feel different. World in motion is going to feel different. You know, I kind of think that, you know, considering where he was in his life and considering that, you know, you've got a guy here who's, who's been, you know, who's just made 
you know, three of the best records of his career, the pretender running on empty and, and hold out. And people are still coming up to him and saying, you know, we still love late for the sky. I, I think the record is a bit of a reaction to that in some sense. And, and I think that he has to make this record. It's a very important record in, in an evolutionary sense, because if it doesn't get made, you know, if, if he doesn't make this record when he makes it, if lawyers and if tender in the night, tender is the night and somebody's baby aren't the hits that they are, what happens after that? It's it's made me think about other artists too. Like if you don't kind of meander like that and explore like that, I can guarantee you a podcast like this doesn't exist. It's pointless if you're not trying things. You know, different artists explore these these facets of their career different ways. You know, Neil Young made some positively terrible records over the course of his career. You know, I, I still don't know what the Shocking Pinks was about. And Trans just escapes my ability to try to figure out what was going on when he made that record. But he had to make those records in order to move past those records. I think that for him, you know, it was a reaction to the perception of him as the kind of writer and the kind of performer that he was. And I, I think that he, he made this record with something to prove. He made this record to, to show that, you know, yeah, I, I, I stood on stage with Bruce Springsteen at the, the Muse concerts at the No Nukes concerts two years ago. And, you know, I need to see if I can do this too. Well, Tom, it was really awesome talking to you. I'm really glad we've connected and I actually really look forward to talking to you again sometime. Anytime, man. It's been a pleasure. 